From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An $11 million teaching center opened at Upstate recently that allows for the simulation of real-time responses to medical emergencies and procedures. The new SIM Center is meant to improve patient safety and patient care. And with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to explain how are Darren Carboni, the Director of Interprofessional Education and University Simulation, and Dr. Eric Rufa, the Director of Education in the Sim Center. Thank you both for being here. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Let's start with sort of a description of what medical simulation is, because it's not unique to Upstate. Medical schools all over the country have medical simulation, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, medical simulation isn't unique to Upstate, and a lot of medical schools and other healthcare professions are now using medical simulation to help with the education of their students. It's also used for practicing healthcare providers so they can improve and improve safety of, of patient care. All right. Why is being able to simulate something important? I think it's important for a number of reasons. First is patient safety. Uh, when providers and uh, learners are learning how to do procedures or how to work together in teams, we don't want them to be um, kind of doing it for the first time on patients. And so it's very important for them to practice on mannequins, which are basically uh, computers that look like humans, or on task trainers. And these are basically like body parts, simulated body parts made out of plastic or rubber that... Um, providers can practice procedures on, such as a spinal tap or placing a central line or like an NG tube or even an IV line. Um, one of the other important things is our healthcare training is pretty siloed right now. Uh, nurses learn from nurses, doctors learn from doctors, respiratory therapists learn from respiratory therapists. And so it's important for providers to have an opportunity to work together in teams, interdisciplinary teams. And so the Sim Center is a perfect time for that. Uh, currently, the healthcare system um, kind of expects providers in each discipline when they start working for real to just work together without any problems in communication or teamwork. Uh, but in reality, just like any high-performing team, like a basketball team or a hockey team, they need to practice together and work on the teamwork and communication. And so the Sim Center is a perfect place to do that. So it's both the hands-on technical skill, mm -hmm. but also the bit, like the bigger picture of how it all goes together. In, in a lot of ways, the soft skills are even more important than the hands-on uh, kind of skills of learning how to do procedures, uh, because it's something that isn't always covered in medical school or nursing school or physical therapy school. And just learning about those soft skills in the book like, uh, isn't enough. Um, you have to actually go out and practice it. Uh, we wouldn't ask people to uh, learn how to like ice skate on a hockey team um, just by reading a book. Um, you actually have to go out and do it. And so in healthcare simulation, to, to go out and practice working as a team to take care of a patient, and sometimes in a critical scenario uh, where they're having a heart attack or maybe um, are septic and hypotensive is, is really important for that teamwork. So Darren Carboni. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the Sim Center here at Upstate. I know sure. this is radio, but give us a walk through it. <laughs> sure. Um, so the simulation center here that we have is 8,600 square feet, so tons of space here. 
we have an area where students, I should say learners actually, because we'll be supporting both uh, students and staff at the hospital, um, is, is kind of a, a main landing area, kind of a lobby to um, welcome visitors, welcome uh, folks who'll be coming here to learn. Uh, and kind of preparing them for the simulation, whether that's the immersive patient care simulation or that skills and task training um, or whatever they may be using the space for that day. We have uh, two pairs of debriefing rooms uh, that are really designed for maximum flexibility. So each of these pairs of debriefing rooms uh, have a wall that, that delineates the space right down the middle. So we can use all four areas at once, or we can use two big areas or any configuration therein. But that's where a lot of the learning really happens. And, and as uh, Dr. Rufo was mentioning, um, that's where you really anchor that learning. After you've had an experience, you come back and you talk about it and process it a little bit. We have uh, six patient care rooms um, that are... Uh, so these look like hospital rooms. They look like hospital rooms, and we can they're, they're really designed for maximum flexibility. So we can set them up to look like an emergency room. We can set this to look like a, a labor and delivery room. We can make it set look like a, a patient care, like a regular hospital room, or maybe we take everything out and we set this up as a waiting room. And now the simulation is that you're going to have a difficult conversation with um, a family member or the patient, um, and you're going to deliver some bad news, and that's the simulation. All things that you want to have as near authentic an experience before you actually have to do it, so you can really learn from that. This is where we want people to make the mistakes uh, and learn from them. Uh, we also have a full operating room. Um, we have four control rooms to monitor and manage the uh, the simulation in each of the different rooms. Uh, we have a very large skills and task training area that can be separated into two groups um, as well there too, but that's where they really do a lot of the hands-on, practice lumbar punctures, different procedures that you really wanna practice on something before you're, you're practicing on a real human. <laughs> now, during the open house recently, I wandered back there and these mannequins look sort of alive. With the, <laughs> like the eyes were blinking, Sure, is that? On purpose? That is. So pupils dilate, they blink, uh, you can take a pulse on them, skin is very lifelike, they respond to simulated medication the way that a human would in terms of physiological changes to their, their vital signs. Um, yes, we want to get as close to authentic as possible. One of the opportunities that we have here is we're actually bringing our standardized patient program into um, kind of extending that human simulation that we've been doing here for years in, uh, in Steve Harris's department in clinical skills, um, where we um, use real humans who are portrayed, who are trained to portray a certain case and uh, give real rich feedback to the learners as well, too. So we may have a simulation that is using a mechanical simulation, a mannequin, uh, for the first part of it. The second part is now we've moved from the emergency room to a patient care room, and you're speaking to a standardized patient. Uh, just an incredible learning opportunity for, for all the folks here. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Darren Carboni and Dr. Eric Rufa, both from Upstate's new simulation center. Is there evidence that medical simulation leads to better patient care? Has this been studied and looked at? It has been studied, and it's a relatively new field. Um, and so the data is, is new. And so we do have some uh, reasonably good studies to show that medical simulation improves patient outcomes, um, in particular with um, task training and uh, procedures. Um, there is really good evidence that 
uh, teams practicing putting in central lines with simulation, at least with simulation as part of their training, reduces uh, bloodstream infections from these central lines. And central lines are basically large IV lines uh, that go into the large vessels that are often in people's necks and stuff, and it's a procedure to put them in. So there's some evidence on that. There's also some evidence that, um, especially in obstetrics and gynecology, that training together and team training uh, improves outcomes of mothers and children um, in the birthing process, especially when there's complications. And this concept of simulation is not unique to medicine, right? It's been used in the military, and right? So there's some history. Yeah, um, simulation has a long history, and probably chess is probably the earliest simulation, um, uh, war simulation. And then in the military, simulation has been used for many years. And in fact, a lot of the medical simulation comes from the military. It kind of started there. And then a few pioneers throughout, throughout the country started creating these mannequins. Initially, they were more low-tech low than they are today, and now the mannequins, as Darren describes, are quite high-tech and can uh, interact just like uh, the provider can interact with the mannequin just like they would a regular patient. They, they'll speak back and they can ha- provide physical exam findings for the provider to detect, and also you can do procedures right on the mannequins. Just for context, too, the mannequins themselves are about $75,000 a piece. So very complicated, expensive wow. equipment here. And to, meant to be used over and over and yes. for many years, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, t- walk me through, like, what's, what are some of the simulations um, that you'll be doing? And, and do you look to do things that are sort of routine, that, are, that will happen, that, that a student would encounter routinely? Or do you look for the trickier, kind of the zebras instead of the horses? We really do both. And so um, simulation can be used for those routine, um, everyday uh, situations, um, whether it's communicating with a patient uh, on a pre-op about the risks and benefit um, and getting a consent, um, and that happens every day, and so the students can practice that. Whether it's putting in a routine central line or an IV line, we can do things like that. Uh, In the immersive simulations, we can um, simulate like an asthma attack, which happens every day. or we can simulate a unique and rare event such as anaphylaxis or an uncommon event like anaphylaxis, a serious allergic reaction to a medication or maybe a, um, a food uh, that happens once in a while. And so yeah. we, we use it for all those things. How does um, the professor who's uh, working with the students, how do they go about grading them on their performance? Well, the majority of simulations um, aren't graded. It's for um, learning and helping the student progress and helping the learner or healthcare provider progress and get better. So they don't have the additional stress of, can I get earn an A for this? They can relax and focus on doing what they're doing and doing the best they can. And so um, that's very important uh, because medical simulation, as you can imagine, um, puts a lot of stress on people, even without the grade. We're throwing them into situations where they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know ahead of time if it's going to be an allergic reaction or a person with respiratory failure. And so that in and of itself is nerve-wracking. Um, to try to decrease some of those nerves, um, we do a pre-briefing where we prepare the learner and we tell them what to expect, what their role is going to be in the simulation. We go through some basic concepts of simulation. We prepare them for the mannequin because the mannequins, although they are very realistic, they don't look entirely like real humans. Um, and that's very important, that pre-briefing, in order to pre- prepare the learner. If we're going to actually have the students graded, um, we want to make sure they know that ahead of time. 
and we want to make sure it's, we still maintain a safe environment for learning, whether we're grading the students or when, whether we're just having them in there so they can learn and progress to take care of patients better. And just to follow up on that too, we want to take a very methodical approach to all of this. This is not just turn on the lights, come on down here, do a simulation, we'll see you later. This is um, a very, um, very thought out process to make sure that we're getting to uh, good learning outcomes through the pre-briefing, as Dr. Rufo was mentioning, um, the simulation, the structure of the simulation, how do you develop a scenario, how do you develop a scenario when you have medical students and nursing students and respiratory therapists in there to make sure you're meeting everybody's learning objectives, um, coming together to develop that, uh, you know, against best practices, best debriefing practices, uh, and really making sure that we, it's not the wild west down there, that it's, it's very, um, that the processes and the procedures are repeatable, that you get to good outcomes, that you can measure those outcomes and you can get to good assessment too. So there's a lot of best practice out there too. Fortunately, we have Dr. Rufa on our team here too, is going to help us to uh, ensure that that's taking place. And because they're using real medical equipment and devices mm -hmm. that they'll be using on real patients one day, right? So it's very realistic in that sense. One of the things when I was um, preparing for this, um, I saw one of the benefits being the ability to allow errors to continue to their natural conclusion. Because in real life, if a student was working on something and going down the wrong path that would harm the patient, they would be stopped, and right, by mm -hmm. their superior. Yes. But in these scenarios, they're allowed to, to experience that and see what would happen, right? That's true. And often uh, times that's what we do. We allow that um, decision, um, whether it be an error or just a decision that would be different than what, say, the expert would do to play out. Um, and then that gives us something really rich to talk about in the debriefing, to talk about with the team, if it's an immersive sim, why they chose to go down that route and what decisions they make and really analyze what were their frames, what were the knowledge, what was the experience that they were experiencing that they put together to go down that route. And that's kind of how you diagnose the learner in that situation. That's part of the debriefing. You really get into the minds of the team and the different individuals and uh, kind of pick apart what went into their decisions. And then we can add more information to those frames. So next time they'll have more information or if one of those assumptions they were making or they a bit of knowledge that was a little bit off, we can talk about that and teach to that um, particular deficiency. So that's how they learn decision-making. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and again, just to kind of piggyback off that too is, you know, part of a good methodology going about this is having the debriefing right after the simulation too. So learners aren't left to wander around for the next week or so right. to think about that and process maybe a mistake they made that they're, you know, beating themselves up about or something that they thought went really well when really that was a huge learning opportunity that they should be taking it away. So having it right after, allowing them to process the experience as part of that, that group, um, a facilitated group there and doing that in a safe environment. Um, that's what we want to happen because that's where a lot of that learning really gets anchored right there. Well, this sounds fascinating, very interesting, and I appreciate you both coming in. My uh, guests have been ups from Upstate's new simulation center, Darren Carboni, the director of interprofessional education and university simulation, and Dr. Eric Rufa, the director of education for the Sim Center.
I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.